Did you know some travel credit cards offer 10 times points on your spending? Don't miss out on big rewards for your next trip. NerdWallet lets you compare smart travel credit cards side by side, curated by an expert team of finance nerds. What could future you do with better travel rewards? A free flight? A room upgrade? Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. Reminder, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. NerdWallet. Finance smarter. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G-connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is Accelerating Innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at tmobile.com slash now. Whether it's her first Mother's Day or her 40th, she deserves more. Shop tons of stunning on-trend jewelry for every budget at Diamonds Direct. Diamond fashion jewelry, beautiful birthstones, everyday pearls, starting at just $200. Commemorate the real loves of her life with a gorgeous pendant featuring the birthstone of the one who made her mom. This Mother's Day, Diamonds Direct has everything you need to say thank you. Diamonds Direct. Your love, our passion. Online at DiamondsDirect.com. This point about radical communication, you do have to do that in an open marriage. And one of the most radical things that you have to communicate about is how are we going to allocate our resources if we're inviting other people in? My guest, Dr. Wednesday Martin, is a social scientist and author who likes to apply an anthropologist's lens to the weird and wild ways we behave as humans. Her number one New York Times bestselling book, The Primates of Park Avenue, is a behind-the-scenes portrait of the strange and fascinating customs of super-wealthy Upper East Side moms in New York. She's also the author of Untrue, Why Nearly Everything We Believe About Women, Lust, and Adultery is Wrong, and How the New Science Can Set Us Free. Wednesday describes herself now as a sexpert and talks a lot about female desire and clitoracy. So... What does that have to do with personal finance? Well, I'm going to make it about personal finance because I think there's a lot of overlap in the Venn diagram of money, power, sex, and pleasure. And I cannot wait to see how Wednesday will break it all down. I'm Maya Lau, and this is Other People's Pockets, the show where I ask people how much they make and how their finances work so the questions we all have about money can be a little bit less of a mystery. Hi, Wednesday. Thank you so much for joining me today. Hi, Maya. Thanks for having me on. I can't wait to talk to you about <laughs> sex and money. I asked you to find a drink that you find pleasurable, that we can enjoy a drink together. Did you pick one out? I did. And uh, like a typical uh, privileged person, <laughs> I went to a health food store and I got these elixirs that are in little glass bottles. Yeah, and I got them from, like, the shaman, 
right? The shaman on Santa Monica Avenue. I think it's really significant that they're in glass. Rich people like things Mm. in glass, right? We heard experts telling us that there could be um, phthalates and other Mm. endocrine disruptors in plastic and that it could leach into our, what we're drinking, right? So, Rich people get to drink things out of glass bottles and poor people have to drink things out of plastic. This is just one of the places that my work takes me even as I'm buying a a drink that (laughs) brings me pleasure. So are you a rich person? Such a great question. And it's something I've been thinking about a lot, especially since I moved to Los Angeles. The difference between wealth and perceptions of wealth and capital and cultural capital in New York and LA. If cultural capital is inextricable from wealth, and I, as I believe it is, and I made that case in my book, Primates of Park Avenue, uh, then I'm not a rich person in LA from the perspective of rich people. I might be privileged enough to live in a nice house and have a nice yard and feel very blessed and fortunate as I do. But if I don't have the forms of cultural capital that separate rich people from merely comfortable people in LA, uh, then I'm not. A lot of people think that rich is a term that is a lot less elastic than it is, mm-hmm. right? So there are all these subtle ins and outs. Uh, once you enter into one of these ecologies of the super wealthy. And I do think it's important to crack those cultural codes and to understand them, you know, not just because they're amusing, but because cultural capital and these micro-knowledges are the ways that Mm -hmm. income inequality gets perpetuated. My work has been very much inspired by the work of an anthropologist named Laura Nader, who had students in the early 70s who wanted to basically study rich bankers is what they were called then, you know, at the equivalent of like a Goldman Sachs. And her anthropology students kind of naively went and said, you know, we want to study your culture. And unlike poor people all across the world and all across the country who have no say in whether social scientists study them or not and just have Mm. to tolerate being put under the microscope. These bankers said, absolutely not. You may not become part of this and you because the stakes were so high. And so Laura Nader started thinking about how anthropologists are always studying down, studying people who are the opposite of privileged. Much of anthropology is studying people who are oppressed, who are underprivileged, who uh, have been minoritized. Mm -hmm. But she said, but it's equally important to study up. And she said, damn, it's hard. Mm -hmm. Because these people don't just have capital, they have cultural capital. And they do not want to share this secret sauce with anyone. So studying up is difficult. It is very expensive. They would have to have the time, energy, money to first get an internship Mm -hmm. and not be paid to do it. Uh, and then started an entry-level job, maybe not getting paid enough because only rich people can 
get entry-level jobs here because they're living with their parents, they're getting a stipend from their parents so they can afford the low-paying job, and then work themselves, work their way up. And I saw this during Primates of Park Avenue, you know, it was uh, expensive to buy the right clothes, uh, to get the seats at the galas, um, to participate, to go to the places where people vacationed, and to do these things. Studying up is expensive, but if we're not doing it, we are leaving all the secrets of the privileged in the hands of the privileged only and nothing changes. How did you get to this point where you're writing number one New York Times bestselling books on everything from wealth to motherhood to sex? Sure. I studied anthropology as an undergraduate at the University of Michigan. And one of the first people who really set my brain on fire was a primatologist named Barbara Smuts. She was team teaching uh, a primatology class with Richard Wrangham, who later went on to become the chimp murder guy. And Barbara Smuts was the baboon friendship person, expert. And I realized... Uh, there were things about non-human primate social behavior and sexual behavior that could give us a clue to our evolutionary prehistory and in part, you know, start us on a course to understanding why we feel what we feel, think what we think, and do what we do. So as a senior, I decided how cool would it be if for, for my senior anthropology project, you know, I pretended to be a freshman and I rushed to sorority. Mm. In the era before, for the internet, this was possible. People had a harder time finding out who you were and what you were all about. So I, I did that. Um, I rushed to sorority. Eventually, I, you know, was invited to join, and it was fascinating because it was a whole mm-hmm. secret world with its own rituals and uniforms and belief systems and even its own sacred texts. And it was this sisterhood of sorts that was just humming right alongside the normal world, but was very distinct. I got to see that these women had very specific sexual and social strategies. They had very specific ways of bonding um, and affiliating. And as a feminist, you know, I had to really acknowledge that their bonds of what they called sisterhood, you know, were compelling and that their relationship to fraternities was complex and weird. And I just loved it. I loved immersing myself. I loved being a participant observer. I loved learning the secrets, you know, and they were weird. These rituals were weird, you know, pledging your allegiance to this group of women, looking at all the photos on the walls, uh, learning about their belief system. It just crystallized for me what I could do and think about and write about. What if I could be sort of in a culture, but sort of outside of mm-hmm. it? I should note, sororities at the univer- in the system, when I was looking at it, were very segregated, right? And... and um, you know, women of color did not seem welcome in the sorority that I rushed, which was disturbing. The other thing that was very troubling to me was, you know, when they 
invited me to pledge the sorority and I had to come clean, if you will, about who I was and what I was doing. And two of the women who had invited me to join, I will never forget sitting in Drake's coffee shop in Ann Arbor, Michigan, and these two women crying uh, when I told them that, you know, this had been an academic project for me. I had really loved getting to know them, but I wasn't going to be able to do yeah, this. Yeah, I mean, I'm surprised that that the reaction was just crying. Like, I, I would imagine you would have <laughs> maybe... Been in even received... more trouble. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it might have been, it might have been much worse. But mercifully for me, it just involved probably a lot of gossip and anger and sadness um, from people that I was not connected to socially. But I, I did feel, you know, that I had been privileged to be allowed in their world Mm-hmm. even under false pretenses. And I, you know, I tried to make my amends for that. But it's an imperfect process being a participant observer, and it's a messy mm-hmm. one. What was your upbringing around money? Very weird. What was typical about it was that it wasn't spoken about. I remember one time I was a little kid and I got some gift at Christmas and I was dutifully filling out the um, warranty form. I was old enough to fill out a warranty form for whatever my gift was. And the question, one of the questions was, what is your household income? And I asked, and my mother said, who on earth is asking you that? And I said, oh, it's on this form. And my mother said, well, it's absolutely none of their business. We don't share that information. So that was one of my first messages about money. My other messaging that I got about money came from having grandparents who had lived through the Great Depression. And I had grandparents who would drum into my head all the time how lucky I was. You know, we had a swing set in our backyard. It was like a kind of rusting swing set. Um, I grew up in Ann Arbor and then most of the time in Grand Rapids, Michigan. So we had this swing set in the backyard and maybe some fort. And um, they were kind of (laughs) showing their age and wear and tear. And we had some antiques from my great-grandparents in our house. And my, my grandmother would say to me, look how lucky you are. Look how lucky you are. You have a tire swing. You have a swing set in your backyard. Look at these beautiful antiques that your family has. I'm telling you, I felt so privileged that when I grew up and saw that people were much richer than my family, I have still retained to this day this idea that I'm lucky. And obviously I am lucky, right? I have white privilege. I have blonde-haired, blue-eyed privilege. I have thin privilege. I have married to a powerful white man privilege. I've got it all um, in a lot of ways. But I have this extra thing that I got from growing up with grandparents who told me that these normal things that I had were practically magical and that I was very, very fortunate. As listeners to this show, you probably consider yourself pretty smart. But how smart is your wallet? When you're looking to upgrade your wallet, it's time to turn to NerdWallet. Their expert team of nerds has the financial smarts to help you find the right financial products for you. Before NerdWallet, you might have paid for vacations with whatever was in your wallet. But you could have been missing out on miles you didn't even know you were leaving on the table. 
Now you can get a new card with more miles and more upgrades. What could future you do with more travel rewards? A hotel upgrade? Lounge access? Wherever you go next, make it happen with a smarter travel card. Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. NerdWallet. Finance smarter. As with all cards, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G-connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is Accelerating Innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at tmobile.com slash now. Musora is your access to online music lessons for guitar, piano, drums, and singing. This is your chance to reignite some old musical passions or pick up an instrument for the first time. Connect with more than 100 of the world's best teachers and musicians. You'll get seven days totally free to try it out. And then it's just $30 a month, less than a single private lesson. I mean, why do we do Broken Record? Not just because we love hearing from great musicians. We do it because we think that there is something beautiful about the appreciation of music. Don't you think we need more of that in our lives these days? That's the mission of Musora, to inspire, educate, and connect musicians. Enjoy unlimited personal support, weekly live streams, student lesson plans. It's like having a personal music teacher, only much, much better. Just go to musora.com, M-U-S-O-R-A.com, to start a new musical journey today. You don't have to answer this in, like, extreme detail, because the list might be long, but I'm curious to hear, what's every salary you've ever had? I can tell you a few things. I was privileged enough that I didn't have to go to vocational school. I was privileged enough that I could go to graduate school after college and I could not worry about money. And it was one of the times when I realized, wow, I'm really lucky because I'm not sitting here worrying about how am I going to apply this doctorate that I'm getting from Yale. When I first got out of graduate school, I realized I didn't want to be an academic, right? I always wanted to be a crossover person and write for more popular publications. And I started working at one, and it was this famously uh, terrible place to work. It was a revolving door women's magazine with a notorious editrix-in-chief. I negotiated a starting salary of $60,000 as a features editor. And at the time, maybe 1993, um, other jobs were offering maybe 40, maybe 45. And I started at 60 and I just felt so rich. I remember I also wrote a book. I turned a chapter of my dissertation into a book and it was Work for Hire. It was a book about Marlena Dietrich. It was my first book. It wasn't a big five publisher book. It was a small house, Chelsea House Press. But I remember it was a work for hire, and I either got eight or $10,000 for that, and that seemed absolutely enormous to me. 
Later in my career, I got a book advance for Primates of Park Avenue that somebody in publishing described as disgusting. (laughs) You know, people were really interested in a book about rich mommies. And I felt really good about that. And I, I got a very good book advance for that, although I thought that I should get more. And How I was, much was it? Ang- it was $550,000. And this is one of the only times I'll ever put a specific number on something because I think that in publishing, it's really important um, that we demystify what people are getting because people are getting so little. That was a huge number for me. Then my second book, Step Monster, I believe my advance was $150,000. And then Primates of Park Avenue was over half a million dollars. Now, there are people who get bigger book advances. um, And there are people who get much smaller book advances. um, And I think that It's kind of scandalous. I mean, podcasting is the same where it's like no one knows, you know, like what what the numbers are like. Yeah. How do I put this? One of the first things I did when I was studying the social behaviors of the very wealthy was I uncovered this practice where people would hire people at Disney who had disability passes to get them and their families to the front of the line. People were scandalized. That's what Baudrillard would have called a simulation effect, that people were so scandalized by the Disney guide reveal. The real scandal is income inequality. The real scandal is the inequalities between cultural capital and the closed systems that allow people to trade secrets like that, right? It's like insider trading on how to do Disney better. And so these are just symptoms of the overall huge scandal, which is that so few people control so much. A lot of your work in more recent years, like if you look at your Instagram, it seems like your head is more in the sex and pleasure and that space. Like, how did you how did you move into that space? I think I I think I wanted more fun field work after that. (laughs) And I said, what could be more fun than studying like rich, glamorous mommies on the Upper East Side? I'm fascinated, I think, by women we love to hate. You know, my book about my very first book about Marlene Dietrich was that she was so controversial. Was she gay? Was she straight? It was before we had the term queer. She was one of the first women to wear pants. Uh, She was in an open marriage in the 1930s and 1940s in Hollywood. My second book, Stepmonster, was about stepmothers as sort of cultural signifiers in real people. I mean, who do we hate more than stepmothers? Um, And then, you know, Primates of Park Avenue was a a deep dive, I think, into privileged, quote, mean girl moms, unquote, which I saw them as a lot more than that. And then finally, who's the other woman that we love to hate? The adulteress. 
right? And I really just got interested in women uh, who refuse monogamy. You know, what are the evolutionary precedents for that? What is monogamy or non-monogamy across species? Um, I'm a comparativist. So I just thought, well, gosh, if I'm going to do field work now, let's start with this topic of women, another woman we love to hate, uh, the woman who openly refuses monogamy or, quote, cheats, unquote. And let's look at this. Mm -hmm. And how did she get this way? Why does she do what she does? Why does she want what she wants? Why does she feel what she feels? The usual Mm -hmm. for me. Um, You know, I just thought, well, this is going to be a real lightning (laughs) rod because we hate uh, women who aren't monogamous. It was nothing compared to Primates of Park Avenue. It was nothing compared to Primates of Park Avenue that I basically told men, hey, here's a whole mountain of data that make it clear that women get bored of cohabiting, exclusive, partnered sex with a man before men tire of it with the women. And, and that monogamy, if you look at the data, is a tighter shoe for women in the aggregate than it is for men in the aggregate. There are exceptions. I always have to say that. Um, I thought that people would blow my head off, but revealing the practices of rich people was something that people found much more upsetting. Mm. Now, don't get me wrong. When you tell people, hey, there's all this new sexual science that you don't know about, Mm -hmm. and it completely upends who we thought men and women were sexually, that is upsetting Mm -hmm. to people. But what I found was that it was not nearly as upsetting uh, as talking about wealth and the practices Mm. of the wealthy and the beliefs of the wealthy and uh, the juicy, intimate lives of rich mommies on the Mm. That is really interesting. That was much much more upsetting to people. Um, So that was a lesson for me. But yes, I really, I remember my husband saying, wow, since you you started studying uh, female infidelity across cultures and species, our lives have gotten much more interesting. Because, you know, I went from basically being a participant observer in a very traditional gender-scripted culture on the Upper East Side and dressing like it and talking like it and acting like it and walking the walk to studying women who were openly swingers, sex workers, you know, women who... Uh, were part of polyamorous communities, along with women scientists who were changing the sexual science. And so my field work, instead of going to like parents association meetings or buying a ticket to a, the nursery school gala, my field work instead became going to sex parties, mm-hmm. right? That's and way more fun. <laughs> or, or yeah, interviewing sex workers or interviewing women who were having clandestine, non-monogamous relationships and lives. So it was quite a switch in every regard. But one of the things that really struck me was how impoverished we are as a nation. Some people's privilege aside, we are impoverished as a nation when it comes to understanding and valuing sexual pleasure and understanding that it is a building block, not of sexual health, but of health. Um, And I was amazed at just the terror um, in some cases of 
mentioning it. The fear that if you talk to your children about it, they'll just run out and do it too early and too young. I did see that across the economic spectrum, because we got rid of sex ed in public schools, that was really a Reagan-era mandate, how it really impacted all of us. Of course, it most impacts kids in public school who tend to be, uh, you know, kids of less privilege. It mostly impacts them that they're not getting this information. But it shut down sexual discourse, sex ed discourse, and any discourse about pleasure for decades. Mm -hmm. And that's where we are now when it comes to sex We are an impoverished nation when it comes to having our sexual IQs are extremely low, even as our access to porn is extremely high. And uh, we have shows with uh, sexually explicit content. But our knowledge and tolerance and enjoyment of sex seem to me, as somebody who has looked at the data and interviewed people and interviewed experts, It seems that, I'll say it again at the risk of repeating myself, we're sexually impoverished as a nation. As listeners to this show, you probably consider yourself pretty smart. But how smart is your wallet? When you're looking to upgrade your wallet, it's time to turn to NerdWallet. Their expert team of nerds has the financial smarts to help you find the right financial products for you. Before NerdWallet, you might have paid for vacations with whatever was in your wallet. But you could have been missing out on miles you didn't even know you were leaving on the table. Now you can get a new card with more miles and more upgrades. What could future you do with more travel rewards? A hotel upgrade? Lounge access? Wherever you go next, make it happen with a smarter travel card. Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. NerdWallet. Finance smarter. As with all cards, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G-connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is Accelerating Innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at tmobile.com slash now. Musora is your access to online music lessons for guitar, piano, drums, and singing. This is your chance to reignite some old musical passions or pick up an instrument for the first time. Connect with more than 100 of the world's best teachers and musicians. You'll get seven days totally free to try it out. And then it's just $30 a month, less than a single private lesson. I mean, why do we do Broken Record? Not just because we love hearing from great musicians. We do it because we think that there is something beautiful about the appreciation of music. Don't you think we need more of that in our lives these days? That's the mission of Musora. 
to inspire, educate, and connect musicians. Enjoy unlimited personal support, weekly live streams, student lesson plans. It's like having a personal music teacher, only much, much better. Just go to musora.com, M-U-S-O-R-A.com, to start a new musical journey today. You've talked publicly about being in an open marriage slash non-monogamous relationship. And I'm wondering, on a personal finance note, what are some of the money issues that come with that? Like, I'm thinking about, are there rules or even just sort of, (laughs) are you allowed to spend more money on the relationship that's with the partner that's not your husband versus your husband? You know, like, how do you put your money where your mouth is? depending on where your mouth is any given day. (laughs) This is so great. I mean, I do want to tell you, coming out and talking openly about being in an open marriage was much less frightening than telling you about my book advance for Primates of Park Avenue. Hmm. (laughs) You know, I went to a meeting of Open Love New York, which is a very diverse group of people into polyamory. Too often, polyamory ends up being this white person, privileged and living in Brooklyn thing. And Open Love New York has done a lot to undo that. At one of these meetings, which was about polyamory and race, an African-American woman said, you know, I grew up in a neighborhood in Philadelphia where there were high rates of incarceration of Black men. And so I'm paraphrasing, but she talked about how people had creative relationship styles out of necessity if they were heterosexual because the ratio of women to men uh, was that women very heavily outnumbered men. And so men and women were basically having uh, what privileged white people might later call polyamorous relationships. But that these, what this black woman pointed out was that her parents had basically a relationship that they didn't have the privilege of a term like polyamory. You know, they got stigmatized. If they had been white and privileged, they might have gotten this beautiful word, polyamory. Like, oh, you're so, and you're so cool and you're so forward. And, That's right. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So a lot of times when it comes to sexuality and relationship containers, white people have gentrified, uh, you know, territory that people, uh, fought very hard and uh, to establish and make work. <laughs> Wait, I want you to answer my question. <laughs> so, okay, your question to me was, how do we handle money in an open relationship? Yeah. I love that question because I do find myself thinking sometimes, in spite of my background as a scientist and all my political beliefs, about autonomy, sometimes I find myself thinking like, is she, is this girlfriend and my husband's going to like get in my way? (laughs) And is she going to get in my way? going to take our money? And uh, yes. Is she going to get a better vacation than I am? That's right. And you know, that's not the way my husband and I (laughs) roll. We're very, we're very clear. Like we're the primaries, but you know, wait, is he going to give her more? Now, this is weird. This is dumb. My husband and I share finances. We're financial partners. We talk about all this stuff. And we made an agreement that if we were going to spend more than a certain amount 
on another person. We would check in with each other about it because my husband and I have joint finances. That's another very personal thing that I'm putting out there um, that feels weirder than admitting that I'm in an open marriage is like talking about having joint finances with my husband. So that's the agreement that we have. God, and you know what? My husband did one time break that agreement and I was extremely unhappy about it. Extremely. Broke the agreement about talking about it or broke the agreement that- We had an agreement to check in with each other about spending a certain amount of money on our non-primaries, right? Mm -hmm. We're primaries and then we see other people. And my husband broke that agreement and it was- Honestly, it was one of the biggest fights of our marriage. Do you have rules about like, like at the end of the year, like if we look at the line items, like your spending can't be higher than mine or, you know, or is it just like, <laughs> like, I love that because it makes me see how messy my husband and I are. Mm. Okay. I want to say something. A lot of people say, well, money's a very important, money is not just money. It's a very important symbol. It's a mm-hmm. metaphor. It's right. a synecdoche. It's whatever. Okay, but let me say one other thing. Money is also a very real thing. It's yeah, a finite, it's, like it's a tangible, outside of our joint resource. account. <laughs> that's right. And when people say to me, well, I don't know why my husband's ex-wife is so upset about him remarrying. And I say, well, is she... Was she financially dependent upon him? And yes. Well, you know, there's your answer, right? So because money in that instance, for example, is not just a symbol. It is a finite resource. Mm -hmm. So it has particular saliency, I think, in an open marriage. And I love you asking about it because it's at once symbolic and not symbolic at all. Yeah. Yep. It's the real deal. It's the thing. Having a non-monogamous relationship or an open marriage requires like varsity level communication skills with your partner. Are there things that we can learn from that kind of radical communication that we can bring over to money? Like what have you learned about going to the next level in communicating with your husband and with your other partners that maybe we can learn in, in how we talk about money? So being openly non-monogamous, I don't call it ethically non-monogamous, to me is a form of autonomy. We are partners. We're primary partners in an open marriage, but we live apart. I live mostly in LA. My husband lives mostly in New York, and that's because of work. But the more autonomous I became in my open marriage and in my living arrangement, living autonomously, dating autonomously, tolerating my husband dating autonomously, even talking to each other about breakups and heartbreaks and stuff, the more important it became to me to have better understanding and control of our joint Mm -hmm. finances. That's really interesting. It's very hard to disentangle sexual autonomy from economic autonomy, political autonomy. They they really go hand in hand. And that's why I like your point about, maybe you didn't mean it this way, but this point about radical communication, you do have to do that in an open marriage. And one of the most radical things that you have to communicate about is 
how are we going to allocate our resources if we're inviting other people in? And I imagine that it's also like an anchoring practice of like, wait, let's get on the same page. If we have not been financially before, if we've before been like, oh, we use a credit card and eh, like, I think it's now it's like, no, we <laughs> got to know what's going on with our finances, right? Because things could yes. get messy. <laughs> things could get messy. And I'm so not maybe saying... this is like the biggest personal finance tip um, <laughs> is like, open your marriage and like, it'll force you to... <laughs> To get out the spreadsheet. <laughs> Open your marriage because then you can talk about anything, even money. Exactly. Right, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Here's the funny thing that happened. Then I got my, my kids fledged a little bit and I was able to, uh, you know, even things up more financially in my marriage. Then years later came the open marriage paradigm. I will tell you, that when I went on Tinder as a woman saying I'm in an open marriage, not looking for anything too serious at the moment, um, uh, get in touch with me, whatever. I had all kinds of criteria. Mm. And I had maybe 12,000 likes the next day. Mm. Young men, super hot men, (laughs) super successful men, Beautiful artists, um, you know, just mm-hmm. gorgeous. I understood power in a new way. And I joked to my husband. I said, I feel that I understand what it is like to be the president of the United States. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so powerful. Did it's I that feel erotic capital? Yeah. Yes. And, you know, my husband was very supportive and. And we laughed about it. And later I dug into the data and I saw that because of past sex ratios skew and because of double standards and shame and but wow, I felt like I felt truly powerful uh, with that erotic capital. A little lightning round, if you will. Yes, let's do a lightning round. How much money do you make? not going to talk about it in the same way that I'm not going to talk about my age until there's not a double standard about aging in this country. So is the reason, tell me more about the reason why you don't want to talk about how much money you make. I think that a 57-year-old woman talking about how much money she makes is not a way for us to address systemic inequalities. Have you ever spoken publicly about your finances before? Not in this much detail. No, I haven't. I was raised to be very private about money. Thanks for pushing me. (laughs) And how do you feel about financial and salary transparency in general? I'll go back to the point I made previously. I remember a reporter for the New York Times telling me that it could really change things if I talked about my age in public. And I felt at that time and really feel now that the burden should not be um, on minoritized people to fix these problems. And I don't think that I don't think everybody needs to put themselves in the hot seat in the same way for us to make progress. Mm -hmm. What I was trying to say is like when the New York Times reporter said, well, why don't you just tell everybody that you're 56 years old? How are things going to change if you don't admit your age? It's like, 
why should I put myself in the firing squad and lose opportunities in a system that asymmetrically penalizes me for aging? Acting like income inequality is about individual people rather than a big system where basically four or five men, white men at the top, are running it. Like, let's not fool ourselves about our individual agency in systemic financial inequality. It's delusional to deputize people like you and me to be responsible to make money a more transparent issue within the larger context of a huge systemic inequality. Our talking about our income isn't going to change the fact that our fates are in the hands of literally six to ten tremendously criminally wealthy white men. There's a way in which this cultural discourse about let's be transparent about money lets these people off the hook. No, and I, yeah, I I agree. And I'm not not blaming you and me for that. I'm just saying, yeah, so it's Yeah, it's it's absolutely the the people at the top, too, that actually need to be transparent. Anyway, I really enjoyed our talk. Yes, Wednesday, (laughs) thank you so much for talking to me today. This has been really great. Thank you, Maya. I really enjoyed it. Thank you for listening to Other People's Pockets. And hey, it really helps us out when people leave us reviews on Apple Podcasts. So if you are liking the show, we would love it if you would leave a review wherever you listen. It really helps us out. Other People's Pockets is written and hosted by me, Maya Lau. It's produced by me, along with Joy Sanford and Dan Gallucci. Production help from Angela Vang. Our executive producers are me, along with Jane Marie and Dan Gallucci. A special thanks to Open Marriage Economics. Other People's Pockets is a co-production of Pushkin Industries and Little Everywhere. To find more Pushkin podcasts, listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you love this show, consider subscribing to Pushkin Plus, offering bonus content and ad-free listening across our network for $4.99 a month. Look for the Pushkin Plus channel on Apple Podcasts or at pushkin.fm. You can also sign up for Pushkin newsletters at pushkin.fm. Find me on Twitter at Maya Lau or on Instagram and TikTok at It's Maya Money. And one more thing, we want to hear from you, OPP listeners. We want to know if you died today, do your bank statements right now reflect who you are, your values? And if not, why not? Leave us a voicemail at 323-540-4255. That's 323-540-4255. Or record a voice memo on your phone and send it to otherpeoplespockets at gmail.com. The tradition of breaking tradition continues with the return of the unconventional awards from T-Mobile for Business at Mobile World Congress. This is an event that celebrates innovators whose bold actions took their industries to new places. If that sounds like you and you're a T-Mobile for Business customer, enter today. If you win, 
you'll be publicly honored among some of the most influential leaders in industry. And me, I'll be there too. Enter now at tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. See you there. Right here, right now. Find your beautiful new floor at Right Rug Flooring. Choose from thousands of in-stock styles ready for next day installation and all backed by the right price guarantee. Visit rightrug.com. That's R-I-T-E-R-U-G.com today to schedule a free in-home estimate or to find a location near you. 24-month financing is available with approved credit. For 90 years, we've been right here, right now. Right Rug Flooring. Musora is your access to online music lessons for guitar, piano, drums, and singing. You know, I love music, but I haven't picked up an instrument in years. You know why? I tell myself, I don't have time. Where am I going to find a teacher? Well, there's an answer. Musora. Musora is the place where you can learn essential skills and techniques with more than a hundred of the world's best teachers and musicians and thousands of famous songs. You get seven days totally free to try it out. And then it's just $30 per month, less than a single private lesson. Just go to musora.com, M-U-S-O-R-A.com to start a new musical journey today.